chapter 8 this morning, 1 Kings chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I want to start off with uh, the name James Hudson Taylor, known as Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to mainland China. He was a British Christian, a Protestant Christian, and the Lord gave him a desire to go to mainland China. He was the founder of China Inland Mission, and he spent 51 years in a foreign land. But Taylor trusted God with all of his heart. He went through great, great difficulty. And in one of his journals, he wrote this, quote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. And this is what he's known for. This is his famous statement. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Said in another way, our God is the faithful God. Our God is the faithful God, and he's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promise. We've been preaching about this and teaching about this and singing about this and praying about this for weeks. And so in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 62, the sermon is entitled, The Dedicated Temple. And you'll see that in your bulletin. And the main point for today is God is good to his people by fulfilling his promise. God is good to his people by fulfilling his promise. I've said this once, I say it a million times, we make promises all the time to our bosses, our supervisors, our kids and our grandkids and our neighbors. Do we fulfill all our promises exactly as we state and on time? No, the answer is no. But God, he states his promise clearly and he delivers on that promise exactly at the perfect time. The background starting in verse 54 was really the, the sermon from last, last Sunday. King Solomon is at the Jerusalem temple. He's praying with outstretched arms. He's asking God to bless the people. He's blessing them in the form of benediction. God is faithful in terms of giving rest to his people. What does it mean to have rest in this context? It means that God's people, Israel, have no enemies barging down the front doors. They are not at war. They have rest militarily from all their enemies. There's a physical rest here. And Solomon also prays that the Lord would incline the hearts of God's people, that God's people would read the Word of God, specifically that they would hold to God's law and God's statutes and God's ways, and that they would conform their lives and behaviors, their words and their actions would be honoring and pleasing to God. This is not for salvation. We do not obey the law to be right with God. We obey the law of God because you are saved already by faith in His one and only Son. We obey the law of God to honor God. To bring glory to God. But it's not for salvation. Solomon is concerned about the universal glory of God. We talked about this last week. He prays very specifically, the Lord, Yahweh, is God. There is no other. As Bible-believing Christians, I hope we hold to this, not just on Sundays, but every day of our Christian lives. That there is no other God. There is no other God. There is no other God. The living God is Yahweh. There is no other God. Solomon charges the people to wholly be dependent upon God, their creator, their Lord. And now we're in verse 62 and 63. The king and all of Israel have congregated together to do something very, very special. There's a very celebration that requires all of the nation, all of the people to come together. 
they are dedicating the temple. The temple built under the reign of King Solomon for the glory of God. And they do so by way of offerings. By way of offerings. And so in today's text, King Solomon presents three offerings that we need to address today. And these offerings are in regards to dedicating the temple. You see this in your bulletin. Verse 64 talks about a grain offering. That's number one. Verse 64 talks about a burnt offering, number two. And then the third and final offering is the peace offering. We see this in verse 64 and then 63. Obviously, it's not in that order in your Bibles, but I'm presenting it for a very specific reason. So we're going to spend most of our time in verse 64 today. I want to touch upon the first two offerings, but spend most of the time today on the third and final offering and why that's important for us. In verse 64, regarding the grain offering, it says this. Read with me. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. Most offerings in the Bible are connected to blood. Most offerings in the Bible are connected to blood. Blood sacrifice is required. But in our first offering, regarding the grain, there is no blood associated with this type of offering. But a sacrifice, really, when we think about it biblically, is the death of an animal. The death of an animal. And normally in sacrifices, it's for several reasons. It's either an act of worship, an act of restitution, or an act of atonement. In today's text, because it's a celebration of the dedicated temple, the temple that was promised to David, God's servant, the Lord's servant, has finally been completed. And so, it's an act of worship. The sacrifices in today's text is an act of worship. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of worship to God. And so when we think about this first offering, there is no blood. And the grain offering is really raw grain or baked grain or cooked grain or fried grain. And you would add oil to it. You would add incense to it. You would add salt to it, but you would not add any leaven or any yeast to it. So it's without yeast or without honey. That's Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11. And so the worshipers in this type of offering, there is nothing to eat. So you would offer a grain offering. The people would eat nothing in this type of offering except if there was extra loaves made with yeast somehow. And the priests, they would eat all the leftovers, if there were any leftovers for the priest. And the purpose of the grain offering is to supplement a meal that has meat in it. Obviously, as Americans, we love our meat. There's nothing, there's nothing better than an Angus burger right? With all the fixings. But a burger is not a burger without bread. Some of you should be saying amen to that. <laughs> so we praise God for this type of idea in the Old Testament. is to supplement meat with bread. But again, there's no blood in this offering. But offerings without blood sacrifice the idea is it's still a gift offered to God. It's a gift connected to other offerings, which leads to the second offering, the burnt offering. The burnt offering consists of a male of the flock or the herd, or it could be a dove or a pigeon in this burnt offering. 
And what would happen is you would take this dove or this pigeon or this animal from the flock or the herd, and you would slit the throat, pour out the blood, and you would take the blood, and if this was the altar, you would take the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. That was the process. And then this dead animal, the carcass, the dead body, would be burnt. But you would not burn the hide of the animal, if it had a hide. You would not burn the feathers of an animal. Talking about pigeons and doves. That means that you humiliate the animal by stripping the feathers off of the bird because what makes a bird a bird visually is the feathers what makes an ox or oxen an oxen is the hide and so you would burn everything of this dead animal except the hide or the feathers and so for the worshiper and the priest in a burnt offering there was nothing to eat in this offering the priest didn't eat. The worshiper didn't eat. There was nothing absolutely to eat in this offering. And the purpose of the burnt offering is to provide atonement for sin. Atonement is to cover up a sin. God's people knew back then when they sinned against the law or sinned against God by violating the law that there was a problem, a sin problem. And to cover up that sin needed atonement. The atonement requires blood. And when there's blood, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so we need to be thinking biblically as Christians when we hear the terms offering and sacrifices. What is actually happening here? So we've talked a little bit about the grain offering. We've talked a little bit about the burnt offering. And I want to spend most of the time on offering number three, the peace offering. The peace offering. In verse 63, it says this, Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. This peace offering is really known as a fellowship offering or a friendship offering. In other words, there are two parties who are not at war with each other, but they're at peace with each other. They are friends, known as the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And in this case, there's a friendship between God and his people. And the animal offered was either the male or a female of the herd or of the flock or of goats. And the blood, again, was splashed on the sides of the altar. That's what was required for atonement. And the idea here is that the temple is dedicated through blood. That's the idea here. The temple dedication is through sacrifice. Dedication through sacrifice. So the sacrifice parts of the animal in this peace offering included all the fat. We read that in our text. And so you may be wondering, what is fat? Is that cellulose? What is that? Fat is actually the edible parts of the animal, which you could actually eat. The delicious parts that doesn't violate Old Testament diet. So this included all the fat or the edible parts. The kidneys the long lobe of the liver. And for the sheep, it included the tail. And the purpose, again, is to enact fellowship between God and his people, that they would be so-called friendly to one another. So the fat and the blood would go upon the altar. But this peace offering also served as a thank offering or a free will offering or an offering to fulfill a vow but the reality is God has already fulfilled a vow God has already fulfilled the promise what was the promise the promise to David was 
You, David, wanted to build me a temple. I will not allow you to build a temple for me. Why? Because your hands are filled with blood. But I promise that one of your seeds or one of your descendants after you will build a temple for me. And who's that person? That's King Solomon. So in this context, this is a thank offering. This is a thank you God offering. So in our text today, the phrase peace offerings is, comes from the Hebrew word shemamim. Shemamim. And it comes from the Hebrew word shalom. If you know any Jews, if you know any Jews, they'll greet you and say shalom. That's peace. Peace that comes from God. And the peace that we're talking here is God is at peace with his people. What's implied is this. There is peace only when there's sacrifice. There is peace with God only when there is sacrifice. There is a cost to peace. In Solomon's case, he offered 22,000 oxen, cattle, and 120,000 sheep. Think about this. That is a number that is so large and so enormous. There had to be one person that their full-time job was to count all the animals. Or maybe there was a group of people. I can't imagine counting 142,000 animals. Can you do that in a day? I doubt it. But this is a lot of work just to do the counting. Who's responsible for this? Yet the Bible is very clear that 142,000 animals were sacrificed. And it talked about the bronze altar before the house of the Lord. There were so many, and you see this in your bulletin, just to give you an idea of the diagram or the geography of the temple, that there were so many animals offered that the bronze altar before the temple could not hold or sustain 142,000 dead animals, sacrificed. It was too small of an area. And so what did King Solomon do? King Solomon went to plan B. Plan B is this. If you look at that map, to give you an idea, the greater court or the outer court, that's the area outside of the temple proper, King Solomon dedicates, consecrates, set apart the middle court of that outer court. In other words, there, were, there was a need for more room and space. There are those who don't believe the biblical account. We'll just call them liberals for now. And they say that 142,000 animals is an exaggerating, exaggerated number. It's a fictional number. There's no way that 142,000 animals could be sacrificed in a short period of time at the Jerusalem temple. Well, there's no biblical evidence or data to prove otherwise. When you think about this, how many Jews were at the time? We're talking about millions of Jews. Three, four, five million, maybe, maybe more. When you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, it doesn't seem exaggerated. It actually is a believable number. This makes sense. But where did this idea of sacrifice start in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Because the idea of sacrifice runs through the entire Bible. So where did this idea of sacrifice start? It is a biblical idea. It started in Genesis 3, verse 21. You want to write this down, Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God, this is what it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You remember God says, Thou shalt not eat. And they ate when they were tempted by the serpent in the garden. And as soon as they sinned against God, what does the scripture say? Their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. They were ashamed. They were guilty. They were embarrassed. And they ran and hid themselves. And if you remember the account, God, in the cool of the day, went after who? 
Adam and Eve. God is the one chasing down humanity in their sin. And what did they do? Well, if you look at Genesis 3, 7, Adam and Eve thought, well, we're going to have our sins covered with our own ingenuity, our own strength, our own ideas, our own ways. Because in Genesis 3, 7, it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, when humanity sins, when mankind sins, they don't run to God for forgiveness. They run away from God. They try to think of all the ways that they can cover up their own sin. And we think about this in today's modern culture. We cover up our sins through drugs and alcohol and promiscuity and sexual sins, all sorts of sexual sins, gambling. We could go on and on and on. We could even say religion, good religion, paying our taxes, being good Americans, being good churchgoers. We could go on and on. But God says something different. God did do something differently. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was God who intervened. It was God who went after Adam and Eve. God says, I'm holy. What you have done to cover up your own sins is unacceptable. It's unsatisfactory. I will not accept this. So God chases down sinful humanity. God provides skins. Skins of what? What's implied is an animal. You have to separate the hide from the animal. And then the hide is given as a form of skin or covering to cover up their shame and their nakedness and their embarrassment and their sin before the holy God. That's the idea here. And so God does not accept man-made traditions. God does not accept man-made ways. God does not accept fig leaves. We have all sorts of fig leaves in the world to cover up our sin, which I mentioned earlier. This type of covering is unacceptable before God. The only thing that the Holy God accepts is what God requires and provides. If God does not provide what is acceptable, then all of humanity is lost and dead and hopeless. God steps in. God chases down sinful humanity. God is the one who provides skin covering, meaning blood. You cannot provide skin covering of an animal unless the animal is dead. Blood sacrifice requires death. One must die in order for another to be free and live. And so sacrifice is required to atone for sins. Let me say it like this. No sacrifice, no forgiveness. No sacrifice, no forgiveness. When we get to Genesis chapter 8, we see another account of sacrifice. After the flood, Noah offers up on a man-made altar a sacrifice. Noah offers up a variety of clean animals as whole burnt offerings. We just talked about what a burnt offering is. The entire dead carcass is burnt up. And it suggests this, that this offering is a gift to the Lord and that the Lord would receive this and that it would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. But the idea is this also, that this gift, this burnt offering, would change the mind of God somehow, some way. And I want to be careful with that idea because God is sovereign. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. But Genesis 8.20, you want to write this down. Genesis 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. On the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, 
I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who is chasing down sinful humanity? It's God. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. The sin that God judged in Noah's account is that he sent a worldwide flood. In this flood consumed all of sinful humanity except Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. You would think after the flood had receded that humanity would move forward in a sinless way. At least you would think that theoretically. As a matter of fact, as humanity restarted to populate all over again, sin became more and more and more. What does that tell you? It tells you exactly what is said here. That the intentions of man's heart is evil from their youth. You can fix, as a human being, you can fix the outside, but you can never fix the inside. No sacrifice, no forgiveness. The heart is the heart of the matter. And so, this sin that God judged remained in the hearts of Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives. But God promises to never again destroy all of humanity by a flood. And what's the sign of that? God makes a promise with humanity that I will never again destroy the world for their sin by way of flood. What's the sign to prove that? The rainbow. The rainbow. That's the sign. So sacrifice, even after the times of Noah, through the patriarchal ages and the rest of humanity, sin continues on in the line of humanity. Why? Because it's the heart is the problem. And we see throughout the Old Testament that altars were built and sacrifices were placed on top of these altars. Sacrifice after sacrifice. Noah offered a sacrifice. Abraham offered a sacrifice. Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice. And when we fast forward to the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, God in His kindness dedicates an entire book called the book of Leviticus to His people so that they would understand what is required of them to have fellowship with me, the Holy God. See, most of us as Christians, when we start January 1st, we're so excited about our Bible reading plan. We read through Genesis, Exodus, and then by the time we get to Leviticus, the Polynesian paralysis starts to set in. We go to sleep. It's night-night time. And the reason that we love to take siestas and naps in the book of Leviticus is because we think it's boring. It's my kids' favorite words. Boring. Those aren't two words. Those are one. And the reason we think it's boring is because we don't understand the ultimate purpose of Leviticus. That God is holy, and in order for us to be forgiven requires the blood of a sacrifice. That's why we think it's boring, because we forget that. And so Leviticus tells us, and it details all the different sacrifices that the people of God, Israel, is to offer to their God, their holy God and creator. And many of these offerings are fellowship offerings, whole burnt offerings, peace offerings, the exact same offerings that are in our text today. But the most important of these sacrifices or these offerings, is the one that deals with sin. To atone for sin and for guilt. So when we think about all the Old Testament altars and all the sacrifices 
that biblical Christianity is bloody, 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 gory, gory, gory. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. And when we put all this together in the Old Testament, this is what we come up with. That only clean animals without defect can be sacrificed. You can't go down to the local Kroger store or Smith store and just pick any animal you want. Only clean animals without defect can be sacrificed. Also, every firstborn Israelite who represents the whole nation must be redeemed with a substitute by sacrifice. We've been talking about sacrifice this whole time. But now, if someone who's the head of the nation is to be redeemed, they need a substitute. Now we have the idea of atonement. Our sins are covered by sacrifice. And now substitution. The Bible's very clear that if you're going to be forgiven, any of us, it's the, it requires substitutionary atonement. Someone must take your place because you are dead. You are enslaved. You have no ability to free yourself from the marketplace of sin. You need somebody else to step in your place. What else we need or what else we get from this? That is, the taking of life is required. The taking of life, the shedding of blood of a blameless, blameless, blameless victim. It requires that type of blood from that type of person. Again, the idea is substitution. Throughout, that's what the Old Testament sacrificial system is about. Is that a person is free when another person or thing is dead. And so, for Christians, or in this case, the Jews, if anyone is to bring a sacrifice to the temple, the Jew who is guilty of sin is to place their hand, if this was the sacrifice, is to place their hand on top of the sacrifice, on top of the animal, and say, what's about to happen to this animal is supposed to happen to me. My sins is upon this animal. This animal is to die in my place. That's the idea there. This sacrifice stands for me. We're talking about substitution. Think about this. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were monthly or weekly or seasonally or yearly. In other words, the blood never stopped. Why? Because sin was continual. But the blood of animals... And bulls and goats would never take away sin. That's what the author of Hebrews says. It was a picture of something greater in the future. And so the priest would represent the people as intermediaries between God and sinful humanity. The priest would stand in the middle, stand in the gap. And this happened all the time. But the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, the apex, the climax, the peak, the pinnacle, was the Day of Atonement. Only one day a year was the high priest allowed to go from the holy place inside the temple into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. He had to go in there with a sacrifice, he had to walk in there with blood. He had to walk in there and take the blood and splash it on the mercy seat. Mercy seat is literally translated seat of forgiveness or seat of atonement. That's the mercy seat. But this high priest could not go into the most holy place a day before. 
If he goes in at the wrong time, he's instantly dead. If he goes a day after, it's the wrong day again. You instantly die before the holy God. So the traditions say that these high priests would walk in with this basin of blood and tassels that had bells on it, and the people who were on the outside in the holy place would listen, and as long as they heard the little bells, cling, 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 they knew that the high priest was still alive, and as soon as there was no more clinging of the bells, tradition says there was a rope tied to their ankle. And just in case, they were afraid to go in, so they would pull the dead body out. So what is this saying? Is that blood is required for forgiveness. Sacrifice is required for forgiveness. Atonement is needed. Why? Because people sin against God all the time. The high priest would make atonement for his own personal sins and for the sins of the nation. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system points to who? Points to Jesus Christ. Points to Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because Jesus took on the full merciless wrath of God upon himself on a tree called the cross of Calvary. And because of that, the justice of God was satisfied. God requires blood anytime God's law is violated. And Jesus is our peace offering. Jesus is the one who satisfied every jot and tittle that the law requires. And yet, he dies in the place of sinners. The Bible's clear. He never died for his own sins because he had none. He is perfect in every way. No sin. He's the sinless Son of God. When we think about this text, about there was so much sacrifice offered at the Jerusalem temple that the bronze altar could not hold 142,000 animals. So King Solomon goes to plan and he consecrates and he dedicates the middle of the greater courtyard because he needed more space. Jesus is our peace offering who was dedicated to the cross in the middle of everyone who was there. Jesus is the one who took on the full wrath of God. Jesus is the one who was dedicated by God the Father to be the atonement, the covering for the sins of God's people. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, referring to the suffering servant, the suffering servant is now identified in the New Testament as Jesus the Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus didn't die for his sins. He had none. He died for the sins of his people. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. We are the problem. We are the ones with sinful hearts. Verse 6 in Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that so true? A part of my mind thinks that Isaiah 53 verse 6 is quoting what Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God. They didn't run to God to say, Have our sins atoned for, O God. Please forgive us. They turned everyone to his own ways. They hid from God. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the iniquity, the sin of us all. 2 Corinthians 5:20 For our sake he made him to be sin, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Again, the guilty party is now pardoned by the righteousness, the blameless sacrifice of a substitute. That we might become the righteousness of God. If you are to be right with God, if I'm, I am to be right with God, the righteousness that God accepts is not your good works, not your good deeds. We have none. It's the righteousness of Christ. Given to you, imputed to you, credited to you and me by faith. Not by good works, not by good deeds. By faith in Christ, Jesus. He is our righteousness. And Christ bore our sins. The reason we don't appreciate many times the gospel in everyday Christian living is we forget how heinous and wicked and disgusting and detestable is our sin. We forget that. When we forget that, the gospel of Jesus really has no value to us. Now, we would never say that. But in function, isn't that what we're doing? In practical, day-to-day living. But we need to be reminded that Christ bore our sin. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Passover time. He goes into the temple. He makes a whip and he drives out all the money changers who were selling sacrificial animals. He He chases them out. And he drives them out. And the Jews say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews want to know, what are you doing and what authority do you have? Give us a sign. And Jesus responds in verse 19 of John chapter 2. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. And their response was this. It took our forefathers, our ancestors, 46 years to build this. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? How is that possible? And the answer is verse 21 of John chapter 2. But he, referring to Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his own body. His own body. That he would die for sinners. That God would accept that sacrifice by raising him up on the third day. God accepted the work of Jesus Christ by raising him up from the dead. That's why the resurrection matters. Because if Jesus is dead, you and I have no hope. We're still in our sins. And of most men to be pitied. But Jesus is raised from the dead. So the Jews were focused on a physical temple. The here and now. Brick and mortar temples that can be easily destroyed, which it was in AD 70 when they were invaded. So the Jews were grateful for a physical temple, but yet they didn't think about a greater temple. They were short sighted, not far sighted. They were focused on tabernacles or booze. Booze and tabernacles are the same idea, is the same idea. When the people of God in the wilderness, they were wandering around for 40 years. But these tabernacles or these booths are portable, but the problem is it's temporary. It's temporary. When the people of God were fixed and stationary, God would meet his people in a pillar of a cloud. And when the people saw the cloud upon the tabernacle, the people would know, God is with his people. The problem is the tabernacle or the booth is temporary. But Jesus is talking about a greater temple. Jesus is talking about a perfect temple. Jesus is talking about a temple that can never be destroyed and is forever. Jesus is talking about the temple of his own body. That he lived for sinners, died for sinners, was buried and raised again on the third day, just as the scriptures say, as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is the true temple. God is with his people in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. This idea starts all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was this beautiful, perfect place. No sin. Where God and humanity fellowshiped and communed with no sin. Therefore, the Garden of Eden was a paradise temple. And Jesus tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth or fill the land. It was to be a global temple of God's goodness where the people of God were to tell other nations, God, Yahweh, is holy, bend the knee and worship him. But now we fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is the perfect, dedicated temple. So even though that today's title or sermon is entitled The Dedicated Temple, the dedicated temple is the body of Jesus. God dwells with his people, not in temporary tabernacles or temporary temples. Anything that can be destroyed, God dwells with his people through Christ. Through Christ. In the peace offering that we've been talking about, it's really a meal. Because remember, I talked about it's a fellowship meal, this peace offering. It's a friendship meal. It was where God is friendly with his people. The worshipers in the peace offering get to participate in this type of offering. They get to eat all the fat parts. All the choice meat of the animal. Except the portions that go to the priest, of course, according to Leviticus 7. All the meat, all the delicious parts are to be eaten by God's people. They participate in this meal. Right? When you eat, whether you grill it in your backyard, you go to a fine dining restaurant, and you have this delicious steak, of course, your doctor says, don't eat the fat parts, but that's the best part, right? What he doesn't know won't hurt him. It may hurt me, but it won't hurt him. And the peace offering that is eaten is a fellowship meal between God and his covenant people. The covenant God with the covenant people. This is therefore a covenant meal. Peace with God and his people as one reformer says it like this, this covenant meal for people who were so much at peace with God that they could sit down and share a meal with God. Is that amazing? To sit down, have peace with God the Creator who is holy. To have this friendship meal. Does that ring anything in your mind about the New Testament? It should the New Testament, yes, brother, thank you. The Lord's Supper, we celebrate it every first Sunday of the month. The Lord's Supper literally is for the Lord's people. It's not for everybody. We fence off the table, do we not? We say, this Lord's table is for the Lord's people. Those who are born again, place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, have turned away from their sins and have been biblically baptized. Do we not say that? This is not a meal for everybody. This is a meal for God's people to commemorate Christ's death and to celebrate the new covenant relationship with great, great joy. The Lord's Supper is not necessarily about a meal, but the Lord's Supper is what the meal signifies or symbolizes. That there is friendship between God and and his people because there's a sacrifice. It's about what the meal signifies, not the actual meal. If you study the different reformers of the Protestant Reformation, when it comes to the Lord's table, they have different positions on what the Lord's table really means. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, all of them agree on this, that we are to give thanks to God for the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. They all agree on that. That Christ 
atonement is enough. So the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of every month, we should be very, very careful and mindful of what the meal represents. We're to remember what Christ has done for us in the past, that he lived for us, died for us, and was raised for us. But also the present, that the church of the living God is to participate in this meal. I run into Christians from time to time who are part of our church family. And they say to me things like this, Pastor Rolo, I don't feel worthy about participating in the Lord's Supper. And then I always ask the question, why? Oh, it's because of this sin in my life. Sin X or sin Y. Have you repented of that sin, dear brother, dear sister in Christ? No. Then repent. The Lord is merciful to his people. God forgives, not because you're good and perfectly obedient, but because Christ is good and perfectly obedient. Turn to him. Remember him. Remember the one who died for you. And if you're part of this church, then participate in this meal. This is a meal between God and God's people because in the middle of us is a sacrifice that God accepts, which is Jesus. And the church is to participate in him. And the church are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a past effect. There's a present effect. There's a future effect of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus says, in the way that I have departed, I will return. Jesus Christ is coming back in the future. And all of God's people said, Amen. Think about this. The temple that's showed and explained in Genesis, this global temple in paradise where God and humanity meet, that temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the living temple that resides with his people. Because remember, temples and tabernacles is where God meets with his people. And when the people saw the smoke, they said, God is with us. Now we fast forward to the New Testament. When you see Jesus, you say, God is with us. God is with us. It's where humanity and deity meet. The body of Jesus Christ was consecrated, set apart, dedicated in the middle, not court, even though that's what the Bible says, but the middle tree. Didn't Jesus die between two criminals? Jesus is the one who was dedicated for death. He sacrificed himself so that you and I would have peace with God. Oh, every time I think about this, I want to cry. We have peace with God. Do you believe that? We have peace with God through Christ, through the blood of his Son. Colossians 1.20 says this, And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross, we have peace. By the blood of his cross, we have peace. I pray that that would always humble us. The blood sacrifice of Jesus is the peace offering that we needed. It brings us into right fellowship with our holy God. So do you, I'm asking you very sincerely and very genuinely and intentionally, do you believe unto Christ for salvation? Do you put your full faith and confidence and trust and hope in Him and Him alone? Those who believe in Christ as the Savior and the Lord is the one who has ultimate peace with God because His blood is sufficient. His blood is enough. You don't need another sacrifice. We don't need another Old Testament temple. We don't need 
Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He is enough and we need no other. We have peace with God through Christ. If that's you, praise God. If that's you, praise God. But there are those of us who are not at peace with God. And if you're not at peace with God, you are actually at war with God. And hear me clearly, you will lose. You don't think you're going to bow your heart and bow your knee before the living God who created you? In the end, you can say whatever you want to say in this life, but in the end, you will bow the knee. You will lose. And you may be thinking to yourself, I don't want that. I don't want to face that day. Then I want to encourage you, look unto Christ and be saved. Quit playing with Christ. Quit playing with Christianity. Quit playing around. You think you're going to live for another 10, 20, 30, 40 years? If God so wills. But what if he doesn't? And he requires your life tonight. What are you going to say? You cannot say, Pastor Rolo and all the pastors of First Baptist Church are like, didn't care for my soul. We did. And we do. And we preach and teach a certain way every Sunday. Why? Because your soul is valuable. And salvation is available. And it's only through Christ. So if you're not having peace with God, it's because you have sin. And you know, we pray for you. We pray that God would never give you rest from your enemies or rest in this world or peace in this world until you come to grips with your sin. You can be forgiven, but not on your own terms. You come to God's terms. He doesn't dance to your music. We dance to his. So where do the people come from to celebrate this dedicated temple? Real quick. King Solomon and all of Israel, they come from the northernmost border, the traditional border of Damascus, which is the area of Syria, all the way down to the border of Egypt, the gorge of Egypt, right? Known as the Wadi of Egypt. This great assembly comes together. And what does this signify? This signifies that the kingdom right now in verse or chapter 8 of 1 Kings is a united kingdom under God until sin comes in. And when sin comes in, it wrecks the people. And it wrecks the kingdom. And it wrecks their fellowship with God. Most celebrations during that time was one week, seven days, right? Seven is the perfect number. But this is actually a two-week celebration. You don't see that in the ESV English versions of your Bible, but you see it in other versions of your Bible or maybe in your footnotes. But we have two festivals happening all in one celebration. One is the dedication of the temple, and the other is the feasts of Sukkoth, which is tabernacles or booths, which I explained earlier. And so the booze is just a, a, a festival recognizing what happened in the wilderness, the pilgrimage of God's people in the wilderness wanderings. So these two festivals, back to back, seven days and seven days is 14 days. And on the 15th day, Solomon lets the people go. I know in the English Bible it says, Pastor Ola says on the eighth day, well, the second week, which is seven days, there's an eighth day, right? Which is the 15th day. And so King Solomon dismisses the people, and the people are celebrating. Why? Because God is faithful to his promise. He made a promise to David that one of his descendants would build the temple for God. That God gives Israel a place to worship. What a beautiful place, this magnificent temple. And also rest from Israel's enemies. But that really points forward to the true rest 
in Christ. So 142,000 animals were sacrificed in two weeks. But look at Israel's response. They blessed King Solomon. They invoked divine favor on their king for building this temple. And they went to their homes with joyful and glad of heart. This was the celebration of all celebrations during that time. They were happy people. They were joyful people. They were rejoicing because God is faithful to his promise to David and his people. You know, we're not required to bring animal sacrifices as New Testament Christians. Why? Because God has provided the ultimate sacrifice in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus humbly laid down his life for us. But if you remember the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system is you are to bring the first and the very best to sacrifice by the priest on your behalf. But let me ask you another question. What are you sacrificing for God's kingdom and God's glory? What are you actually doing? Do you prefer to worship God without sacrifice? I want you to know you can never worship God as God requires without a sacrifice. You can never enter the temple, Old Testament imagery, without a sacrifice. You can never worship. You can never pray. You can never honor. You can never follow God and obey God in a true and right way without a sacrifice and a change of heart. So do you prefer to worship God without a sacrifice? If that's you, you cannot worship God. You cannot worship God without a sacrifice at all. Our worship to God for our great salvation in Jesus Christ demands a sacrifice that God has provided on your behalf. But this sacrifice that God has provided demands something from you and me. It demands your time. It demands your commitment. It demands your praise. It demands your giftings. It demands your financial resources. It demands your soul and your life. It demands everything that's within you and everything that you've been given by God. It demands your dreams, your ambitions, your thoughts, your words, your actions. It demands everything from you. And you may say, how selfish of God. But the reality is, how selfish of you and of me. So, what are you sacrificing for the glory of God? You know, yesterday we had a church work day. I'm very grateful to all of you that showed up yesterday. You gave of yourself. You don't get paid for this. But you showed up and you worked most of yesterday. I know we've got better things to do, but in reality, we don't have better things to do. So I'm grateful to God for those of you who served. Pastor Corey stood here earlier and he said, we need help in the back. See, the reality is this. You can hear the need and say, there's a need in the church. And what we do right away is we think like this. Only if I'm qualified in that area will I serve. For something like that, you don't need to be qualified. You just need to have a heart to serve. See, we always limit our service and dedication to God based on what we want. Based on our time, our money, our resources, our vacation time, our movie time, our family time. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place for everything. But what are you intentionally sacrificing for the glory of God? A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A religion that costs nothing is absolutely worthless. As I end here, there's a brother who put together a very interesting poem about God's faithfulness, that God never fails. And he says this, quote, 
God never fails the soul that trusts in him. Though disappointments come and hope burns dim, he never fails. Though trials surge like stormy seas around, though testings fierce like ambushed foes abound, yet this my soul with millions more has found. He never fails. He never fails. Though off the pilgrim way seems rough and long, I yet shall stand amid yon white-robed throng. He's looking for the white righteousness, that robe of perfection as he stands before God. I yet shall stand amid yon white-robed throng, and there I'll sing with millions more this song. Here's the song that he's looking forward to sing in heaven. He never fails. He never fails. And there's coming a day when all of us will be in that heavenly choir singing to God because he is worthy that God never fails. God never fails. And when he makes a promise, he carries it all the way through to the end. So we must remember that we can only have peace with God through a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Sermon in a sentence. Born-again Christians have true peace with God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And we are of all people to be joyful and glad of heart. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you that everything that you required of us, we could never create or provide on our own. But yet in your kindness, you provided everything we needed through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by his sacrifice, by his precious blood, all his precious blood has washed away all our sins. And we stand before you righteous, and we praise you for that. Glorify your name, we pray. In Christ, amen.